All right. We find ourselves continuing in a series in the New Testament book to the Colossian church, the book of Colossians. We find ourselves in chapter two. We are almost to chapter three. We will be reading today verses 16 through 23. Colossians chapter two, verses 16 through 23. This is God's word. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in details about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If Christ If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We all know that there is a type of religion that is dead, There's a way to go through the motions, show up at church, follow the rules, but to lack any sense of God's presence or power. Whole communities can fall into a pattern of just doing the stuff, showing up, checking the boxes, but years go by before they ever see any tangible manifestation of the presence of God. Someone coming to Christ, before they they sense the power of God in their lives. How does a person or a whole church community fall into that trap? What are the qualities of a faith and practice that is alive, vibrant, powerful. That is what our text is all about today. If you'll remember, this letter is being written to a group of believers, and they had started well and started strong. Paul begins the letter by commending them because their lives, their hearts, They are full of faith, hope, and love. But he's worried about them because there's a group of false teachers 
who have come in. And they have been teaching uh, a great error, which we might just call Jesus plus. Jesus plus these rules. Jesus plus these rituals. Jesus plus these traditions. And Paul has been laboring throughout this letter to say, in Christ you have everything you need. It is Jesus plus nothing. He's going to continue to hammer that point home today, but as he does so, he's going to highlight qualities of a ministry and a faith that is truly energized by the gospel. Qualities of a faith that has the power to change a human heart. So let's just walk through it together. Beginning in verse 16. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink with regard to a festival or new moon or Sabbath. And so people were passing judgment on others because they weren't following Old Testament regulations, festivals, new moon, Sabbaths. This is just shorthand for the ritual portions of the Old Testament law. The problem wasn't that there were believers who practiced their faith in these ways. The problem was that they were becoming judgy and requiring others to do so. Jewish believers were looking at Gentile believers and saying, you need to look like us. And that was deeply frustrating to Paul for two reasons. And the first is that it took away from the brilliance of the finished work of Christ. See last week's sermon. But Paul was also frustrated because it created unnecessary barriers to the gospel. Later on in the letter, he's going to say here in the church, there is not Greek nor Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. The gospel breaks down cultural barriers. It doesn't put them up. What's interesting is that in Paul's letter to Galatia, which is a region just north and very close to where the Colossians were, a very similar problem occurred. They had the problem of Jewish believers looking at Gentile believers and saying, become like us. Paul is flabbergasted in that letter because the church was falling for it. They were beginning to practice all of these Jewish rituals. And he says something very interesting in the beginning of chapter 4. He says, brothers and sisters, I entreat you, become like I am, for I have become as you are. I have become as you are. He says that in contrast to a number of Judaizers entering the city saying, become like us. And he said, know that that's not how I approached you. 
I desired to become like you. Paul learned their culture, their city. He lived in their world. He entered in to their questions and problems, their fears and sensitivities. He adapted himself to their speech, their life. He adapted his message to them without adapting the gospel itself. I became like you. And what we learn is that a ministry that is energized by the gospel is culturally flexible and adaptable with everything apart from the gospel. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 9 where he just lays it out. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside of the law of God, but being under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Often we can equate outreach to converting others to the norms of our tribe, our political views, our theological tradition, our dress code, our ethics, our parenting philosophy, instead of converting them to a love and adoration of Jesus. But the norms of our tribe, and we have them, must always be secondary to, and in many cases discarded for a greater view, to have people see Jesus and to know him as he truly is. How do we come to our neighbors, friends, and co-workers? What is the message of our church to the world? Become like us, or I became like you. Are we willing to be as flexible and as adaptable as Paul? Aren't we so glad that Jesus became like us? traveled great distances (laughs) to become like us. True faith and gospel ministry, when it comes to the heart of the gospel, who Jesus is, is immovable, rock solid, but with almost everything else open-handed. Gospel ministry is flexible. It is also dynamic. He says these are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So not only were these practices and rituals culturally specific to the Jews, they were shadows. 
that pointed forward to Christ. These festivals, the the Jewish sacrificial system, even the dietary laws, so much of them were signs that pointed forward to the need and to the work of a Messiah. And many, if not all, were fulfilled in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. So that now they've been either done away with or completely transformed. God was doing something new, but these Jewish believers were stuck in the past. And to be honest, it's hard to blame them, isn't it? I mean, these rituals and festivals, this sacrificial system, these dietary laws, it was how God worked among them for thousands of years. And now they're not required? God's doing something new? This new couldn't be. It was really hard for them to let go of how God had worked in the past. How many of us know that our past can become an idol? That the means that God used to communicate his love and grace to us in one season may not be the means he uses in another Sometimes we can look at the means that God uses and we can see them as an end in and of themselves. We can get in the same rut. I've experienced this with people who have had a past experience and season of growth at another church, but they've had to move. And it's really hard. And it becomes really easy for them to judge their church community based on their past experience. Because a really spirit-filled church would have this kind of music. And a really spirit-filled church would have these kinds of programs. A really spirit-filled church would have this kind of preaching, which I mean this kind of preaching. (laughs) In other words, you met God. He attached himself and met you at a particular place in a particular time with a particular group of people. And now you think that that's how God is going to work in all time zones in every season of your life. But in pining for the past, you might be missing what God is doing now. Which may not look like the last time that God was alive to you. I was thinking about the story of Moses this week. And do you know, where did Moses first encounter God? This is a real question, class. Where did he first encounter God? Burning bush. Think, think, burning bush, that's right. I just imagined him, and I imagine this was probably true. So you experience God at the burning bush. I imagine that every bush that he passed for like the next couple months was really disappointing. (laughs) There was like all this expectation. Why aren't you on fire? But not, where's God? These bushes are terrible. But God wasn't going to meet him in a bush again. To try to reach a place of maturity, likely we have to open ourselves up to the possibility that God might be doing something new. 
But when we're spiritually dry, we tend to look to the past, the last time we felt God really moving, to look to some good old time and we try to reclaim it. And sometimes that's good, but the past can become an idol and God knows that. And so he shakes things up. He does this on a grand scale. When you look at the great revivals of history, and there's been some enormous revivals, huge God's presence going into whole countries, whole societies, changing them. It's happening today in some parts of the world. It always happens. The only thing, however, that revivals have in common is extraordinary amounts of prayer and the communication of the gospel. Everything else is different. The methods are different. The music is different. The preaching is different. It's all different. He does it on a corporate scale, and that's how he works with us individually. We get dry, and we want to go to that one moment in the past that was really electric. It was on I-80, in a geoprism, with the windows down, 98, with a Ginny Owens record on. And so you go back. You find a geoprism. You go back to that spot, you drive down the highway, you listen to the music, but God isn't there because you can't put him in a box. One of the things that irks me about God and makes me praise him when I think about spiritual revival in my own life, when my heart gets cold, he has always used something different to melt the ice. Sometimes it's been a book. Sometimes it's been a sermon. Sometimes it's been in conversation with, some, with someone. Sometimes it's been long seasons of solitude and silence. Sometimes it's been yelling out and screaming to him, writing my own psalms of lament. There's been some verses in the Bible that for whole seasons for me have been electric, full of life. And then I go back to those verses to try to get the same hit, and they're still good. (laughs) But God has another verse out there for me. His spirit has moved on from that verse. Why? Because he doesn't want us to put our trust in a method or a thing or a style or a technique. Those things are all shadows. The substance belongs to Christ. I think the practical application is you gotta, sometimes you've got to mix things up. There are some stable anchors in our spiritual life, but there should also be a dynamism, an active expectation that God can surprise you because he is not a tame God. You can't put him in a box. He's going to burst your old wineskins with new wines. He's not automatic. He's not a force. He doesn't always boil at 212 degrees at sea level. He's not predictable. He's not tame. For thousands of years, he works in a certain way. And then surprise, surprise, in Christ, he fulfills all those shadows And now he's up to something new. Are you missing where God is working now because you're pining after what he was doing before? 
A faith that is energized by the gospel is flexible. It's dynamic. It is also communal. Let's keep going. Verse 18. He says, let no one disqualify you. Insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Going on in details about visions. Pupped up without reason by their sensuous mind. And not holding fast to the head. From whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So it seems that it's hard to figure out exactly what's going on in the Colossian church. But outside of just forcing people or saying you need to adhere to these specific Jewish rules and rituals, there were also these experiences that these leaders were having, that they said, you should be having these experiences as well. Um, The ESV translates one of the words to describe their experiences, asceticism. The Greek there is literally that they delighted in humility. Or the NIV says, translates it, a false humility. It seems that there were some ways that these folks were living their lives, whether it was through material poverty or whether it was the the rigorousness in which they stuck to these particular dietary laws. They humbled their bodies, in in other words. But whatever it was, they were smug about being how humble they were. They were smug, humble people. They delighted in their humility. They were proud about being humble. It also talks about their worship of angels. And it's hard to know what was happening. We don't have any, any historical evidence of Jewish sects actually worshiping angels. Likely what this means is that they, were worship, they felt like they were worshiping among the angels. Having outer body experiences gathered with the angels in the heavenly places. Whatever it was, there was something about their worship that set them apart from the rest of these believers. And finally, it talks about visions, by, by which it means having some kind of special access to God's revelation, whether through dreams or through an inner voice or through some kind of experience. But whatever these ecstatic, uh, ascetic experiences were, they were intense, private, personal experiences that put these folks on a different tour, tier and they were looking at everybody else below and saying you want to level up I'm up here and it made everybody else feel like they were second class disqualified now I suspect though we don't have Jewish mystics asking us to worship with the angels or to delight in our own humility I suspect that we are familiar of this With this, when we hear the experiences of some Christians who have dreams, they worship real. It looks like their experience of it looks like they're worshiping with the angels. They have visions, experiences, and it can leave us thinking, "Man, what kind of faith do I have? I'm pretty unspiritual. I mean, I try to trust Christ and love people and." Hope for heaven, but I don't have visions. I don't have dreams. I haven't experienced much of miracles. I don't have much to boast about. Unlike so-and-so, 
Man, have you heard about their prayer life? Have you heard about their remarkable dreams? Have you seen how crazy they get during worship? There must be something deficient in my faith. And Paul sounds a warning. He says, are you not in Christ? Let no one disqualify you. And then he brings the leaders down to size. First, he says, you're puffed up. This is a word that can just be translated arrogant. It's the same word that Paul uses to describe the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians. And you, rem- you, rem- uh, you remember that their problems with what desiring supernatural experiences was very similar to what we see in the Colossian church. He says they're puffed up, and that's intended to bring them down to size. They have an overinflated view of themselves and like a, like a potato chip bag that's really full until you pop it. That's what he just did. He popped their overinflated view of themselves and exposed their underappreciation for Christ. He says they're not holding fast to the head. Christ is envisioned here as the head of a body and the source of all power, all healing, all grace. He is what we need, not these other things. And then thirdly, this head is connected to the body. Notice the way that true growth and maturity comes in the Christian life. The Christians grow together. Look at it. It says, holding fast to the head from which the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. He talks about the body growing together. That the type of growth that God gives doesn't happen alone. Sure, it might have a private Dimension it needs to, but the power comes from the head and flows to the body through the joints and ligaments and different members of the church. That's how the power comes through the body of Christ. Paul makes this even more clear in Ephesians chapter 4, where he says, Rather, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Every believer... A joint of supply and contact. A source of supply through the head that is Christ. Paul is saying that every member in in his or her contact with every other member supplies something that the body needs. So if you come into this room or in your small group or in your relationships in general, and you feel you have nothing to offer, you are telling yourself a lie. And you don't have something to offer because you're so great. 
You have something to offer because you're connected to the head, to Christ, who has everything to offer. And the means through which he will supply it to us is through each other in loving relationship. And so part of the problem was that these superstar Christians made everyone feel passive, unqualified, rather than essential and empowered. They were feeling holier than thou. John Calvin has this great quote I read this week. He said, No member of the body is endowed with such perfection as to be able without the assistance of others to supply their own necessities. No member of the body is endowed with such perfection as to be able without the assistance of others to supply their own necessities. And what we have to offer one another isn't extreme experiences or worship with the angels or even miraculous power often. It is love. It's love. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries, think about that, and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at longdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. This is what people need. They don't need ecstatic experience. They don't need asceticism. What the, we need love. A community knit together in love. We have so many experts trying to tell us the technique or the thing that we need to do to get fixed. I work with people and their problems all the time. We have more people talking to us. We, so this is typically how it goes. There's some hurt or pain. And that person has me, a pastor, talking to them. Usually a couple of therapists. They have their family. And then they have the body of Christ. Here's the thing. I have found that the most essential piece in that puzzle is the loving accountability of the body of Christ. If someone has that and none of the rest of it, I think they make it. If somebody has all the rest of that stuff but not an accountable community of love, they're dead in the water. That's just been my experience over 10 years. A community knit together in love. It's what we need. And it's what the world needs. An explosive, miraculous individual isn't very inviting or loving. They are intimidating. People look at them and typically say, man, I could never be like that. I could never do that. But an incredibly loving, incepting community, they are something that someone can enter into and be a part of. True faith has flexibility. It's dynamic. It's communal. 
And finally, it harnesses the power of yes, not the power of no. Verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you were alive to the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So here Paul is coming back to these rigorous sets of teachings, particularly about one would, what one would touch, eat, or drink. And perhaps he's talking here about food sacrifice to idols. He talks about that in the book of Romans. But whatever the case, these false teachers had very restricted diets and rigorous rules about what they would touch and indulge in. And this saying no to these things was the main source of their spiritual power. They looked to negativity as the source of their vitality. And we are familiar with this brand of Christianity. When it comes to the Christian life, it's when it becomes mainly a conception of what not to do. When we're known more for what we're against than what we're for. When successful Christian living in any area of life is reduced to simply not doing something. (laughs) Don't do this. Don't say that. Don't look here. Don't touch that. And it's not that we should never say no. We should say no all the time. And no is a particularly helpful instrument for an infant or a child who needs to know their own boundaries. But as someone grows up, you begin to address the heart, right? The place of desire, because you ultimately want them to make the right choices and to choose the better thing. But these teachers were focused on external realities to the exclusion of the desires of the heart. But listen to Paul. He says, these things, they indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And look where he goes from here. After pointing to their list of do-nots that have no value in stopping the flesh, Paul immediately directs the church, to what does have the power to do it. And I'll just read it to you, a little peek, sneak preview of next week. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died And your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Pursue Jesus. Seek after Jesus by setting your mind on who he is, what he has accomplished for you, who you are in him. Set your mind on the things of God and his good purposes for this world. Here's what God through Paul is desiring to teach us. Christian power comes from the yes we pursue, not the no we avoid. 
And what is a Christian's yes and amen? It is Christ himself and all that he has accomplished for us. I do a lot of weddings. I've been doing a lot of them, and I work with a lot of college students. And I'll often ask our college men, are there any gals that you're looking for? Because, listen, there's a lot of awesome single gals out there. And I'm always trying to matchmake a little bit. So I'll be like, hey, man, have you, have you noticed anyone lately? Are there any girls you're interested in dating? And often a guy will say, you know, I just don't think marriage is for me. It just seems like marriage is about saying no to stuff. Like no to spontaneously hanging out with guys late at night and going to the highway diner. You got to say no to no shave November. You got to say no to dressing however you want. No to this, no to that. I don't think this is for me. But then later on, they'll come up years later and they'll be engaged. And I'll say, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. What about the no to the midnight gatherings at the highway diner? And what about no shave November? What about untucked and unwashed t-shirts? Are you sure you want to, why are you, what about the no's? They'll say something like, well, I haven't, I've obviously haven't met my yes. The no's that once felt so daunting seem insignificant in light of a yes. This is how Jesus describes the kingdom of God. He says, it's like a treasure hidden in a field which a person finds and hides and then goes and sells everything else in joy because of what they found in that field. And I'm reminded of that wonderful quote from C.S. Lewis this week when he says this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Listen to this. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That's the message. We are far too easily pleased. We've been led to think that following Christ is about muting our desires. Turning down our desire for pleasure. But what this text does is it exposes this notion that seeps into our faith that the Christian life is merely duty-driven rather than pleasure-driven. And it is written so that our soul might thrill at the possibility that Christianity might not mean muting our desires, but what it's actually doing is encouraging us and commanding us to turn them up. Up to 11. Up to God. We'll see that next week Paul gives us plenty of no's. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put away your old self. Do not do this. Paul's not contradicting himself. He's just teaching us the proper order of things. What we seek to avoid doesn't matter if we're not clear about what we're pursuing. And the power problem in our life comes when we focus only on avoiding doing bad and not pursuing Jesus as our greatest good. 
When we know and enjoy Jesus as our highest treasures, then the no's and do nots begin to fall into their rightful place. There is a greater yes. There is no greater yes in all the world than the thrill of relationship to Jesus. And so let's pursue him with everything we have, with a faith that is flexible, dynamic, communal, communal, and one that's full of pleasure. And he'll turn the, the light in our hearts on. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for this text. Thank you for calling us to yourself and protecting us from dead religion, from rule keeping and the empty power of no. Thank you for asking us to pursue a greater pleasure, not to mute our desires, but to place them on the only thing that can satisfy them, and then to let all the cards fall into place. Um, I pray that we, you, would, you are like that treasure in a field, and as we find you by faith this morning, I pray that we would go out in joy and sell everything that we have for the joy of following you. I pray that you would make us a flexible community that could look at our neighbors and say, we became like you. That over time we could learn what that means. I pray for those who feel cold in their heart. It's been a while since they've experienced a movement of your spirit. I pray that you would keep them from pining for the past and you would make them spiritually awake to how you may be working in their present. Uh, Make them creative. Uh, Make them seek you and help them to seek you and find you in the ways that you're working now. And I pray that you would make us uh, a true community of faith knit together in love where each of us is walking into the room with not only a sense of our need, which is very, very real, but, but we have something to offer one another. And the greatest thing that we have to offer is love. So would you knit us together in love? Man, pray all of these things. Pray that you keep us from becoming just people who go through the motions, that you would give us the power um, to see the kingdom of God really manifest itself in our midst. We give you praise and thanks in Christ's name. Amen.